Welcome to Torah to the People, a podcast from Temple Israel in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm Rabbi Micah Greenstein. We hope you enjoy this selection of our sermons, classes, and conversations with inspiring people from across the Bluff City and around the world. Shalom, and welcome to another episode of Torah to the People. I'm Rabbi Jeff Dreyfus. I am honored and excited to have with us today Josh Scharf, who grew up in the United States, um, who is now uh, in his last year of rabbinic studies at Hebrew Union College in Jerusalem. He has a degree in history from Yale and a master's in Jewish history from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Uh, Josh is a good friend, an amazing guy, and has a very special connection to Temple Israel in Memphis. Um, teaching us about Israel and Israeli history um, many times over the past few years. Josh, we're so uh, glad that you're here, and, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. My connection to Temple Israel even goes beyond that. My grandfather was a member. Uh, my uncles are members. Uh, my cousins are members. So it is a family uh, connection, uh, no doubt about it, uh, to uh, Temple Israel in Memphis. Well, um, it's really to our to our great uh, benefit because um, over the last many years you've you've shed light on pre-state Israel and on Israeli culture and we are really appreciate your voice and your perspective on what's happening right now both um, many many terrible and scary things and also a lot of things that that bring us hope and I know bring you hope um, but before we get into what's happening now I would like to begin with how you got to where you are. Um, Could you start just by giving our listeners a little background into your Jewish life growing up and what led you to want to become a rabbi and and an Israeli rabbi? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I grew up in uh, the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri. Um, I grew up in the reform movement at the Temple Israel St. Louis. Um, I grew up in Nifty and youth group in the local chapter, regional stuff. Uh, really involved Sunday school, song leading. Uh, you know, my my inspiration for picking up the guitar was uh, the the coolest uh, senior in youth group, and I wanted to be like him when I grew up. Um, and I brought this connection with me um, to college, but I wasn't really sure how to how to be jewishly involved there i was also a, a varsity athlete so between academics and, and sports I, I didn't really have much time beyond high holiday services and things like that then going into the second half of my studies my junior year i was really looking for a connection to judaism i really thought that there was something missing and i i wasn't ready to go to chabad because i'm not an orthodox jew and i didn't want to go to hillel because the social scene already clicked up and everyone had their friends and I had my friends and that wasn't uh, something that I was interested in doing. So someone on a lark, I decided to take modern Hebrew, um, 9 a.m., five days a week. For all of you that have been juniors in college, you know that's sort of a, a sort of a crazy decision to make. And really within the first few days, I was hooked. I, I All of a sudden, this language that I'd grown up in, prayed in, sang in, 
um, uh, you know, sang songs in and and was knew that it was something special amongst my friends and my family. All of a sudden, someone was giving me these tools to to utilize the language and understand the language. And that was it. I was hooked. So after school, um, I decided to go to Israel for a year on a volunteer program. The program was not so great, but being in Israel was just wonderful. Um, I don't know how to ex- how to explain it other than it was like falling in love. Like it really, because it's it's been this long-lasting relationship with, with for me uh, at this point. Just this wonderful feeling of connection, a feeling at home a feeling uh, wanted at some times and less wanted at others, like all, uh, all good relationships. Um, and when I decided to make Aliyah after coming back to the States for a bit in 2015, I wasn't really sure what that was going to look like, but uh, my mother would tell you that she knew I was going to be a rabbi from 13 when I was a bar mitzvah myself. I, I don't know that that's the case, but I think that's the right of all mothers to write their own uh, version of history. And um as I was making Aliyah to Israel, I was sort of thinking about, you know, what do I like to do? I, you know, I like to learn, I like to study, I like to teach, I like to connect with people. Um, and luckily enough, I found that at uh, URJ Heller High, which is the Reform Movement's high school in Israel. And I taught Jewish history there for several years. It was a wonderful experience. And sort of as that path came to a point where I knew I'd somewhat maximized that and there was nowhere to go from there, I was looking around and um, this idea of being a rabbi that had been there sort of percolating um, somewhere uh, came back up. And the idea that I could do it in Israel, and I discovered that there was an Israeli program within HUC, within the reform movement, which is where I'm home in the Jewish world, where my values are, where my worship is, where um, where, where my beliefs are. Um, the ability to stay in Israel uh, and work in Israel and um, continue to spread the message and really carry the flag of progressive and egalitarian Judaism in Israel. Because I'm sure most of, uh, as you well know, most of the listeners know that that Orthodox Judaism is the, is the default Judaism in Israel. And we, as uh, pluralistic progressive movements, are still really fighting for our foothold, fighting for full recognition. And I, I really... I'm proud to be part of that, part of that journey, uh, part of that. Um, I don't want to call it a battle because it's not, we're not, I, you know, we, the, the war is not within us, right? We, we really are trying to just remind Israelis that being a Jew and being Israeli don't need to be separate. You really can be both um, without sacrificing your, you know, the, the congregation I work with is in Tel Aviv, sort of the hub of, uh, Israeli liberalism and progressivism, and you don't have to sacrifice one for the other. You can be both. You can you can be loyal to our tradition. You can be uh, faithful to the teachings of our prophets uh, and the values that were set as part of our past, and also a, a loyal believer in modernism and everything that it's promised us and everything that it's uh, granted us. Beautiful. Beautiful. I... I... I share a similar story in a lot of ways in terms of the things that um, rabbis get to do every day are things that just really fill me up and and I enjoy doing. Um, But to me, it's not obvious that as somebody with from St. Louis, from the suburbs of St. Louis, um, who spent plenty of time in Israel, that you would necessarily want to make your home and 
devote your life to building up the Jewish community there. Um, and so can you just explain a little bit, like, what do you find so exciting about being Jewish in Israel today, especially a progressive Jew um, or, or a reformed Jew in Israel today? And why um, are you, you know, throwing your destiny in with the destiny of and the Jewish future in Israel as opposed to the United States? Yeah, well, first of all, it's a beautiful question. Um, uh, I wish you could say it was for a, a catchy autobiography, you know, from the Midwest to the Mideast, but I, I, I <laughs> didn't think about that beforehand. Um, uh, there's something incredible about, um, and I mean nothing, uh, I want to take nothing away from anyone's Judaism and how they express it, but there's something incredible about doing Judaism in Hebrew being able to commune with our texts, with our tradition, with the precepts that have created the people that we are today in the language in which they were originally conceived and then written and then argued about and then transmitted. Um, and yes, there are a lot of different ways to do this along the way, right? You know, as the Rambam teaches us, we can pray in so many different languages and it's still absolutely Jewish and legitimate and full and complete. But for me, there's something incredible to have this, this meeting point of Judaism and modern Israeli, modern Hebrew culture, right? To have in the same worship service the voice and the words of the psalmists that were put together thousands of years ago. And then right after to turn to a tune of Nomi Shemer that was put together 40 and 50 years ago in the same language that's been reborn, given new life, being given new creativity and given new meaning and spirit and life to our people um, in, in uh, the, the 20th and 21st century, um, uh, a time that was marked by so much struggle and pain for the Jewish people. But it's also been marked by such creativity and spirit and resilience um, to be part of, of that, to be able to marry these two things, the ancient and the modern, together with the same letters and the same language um, uh, from all over the world um, is, is an incredibly uh, inspiring thing. Beyond that, I find myself to be very lucky to have arrived at a time in Israel where progress, being a progressive Jew is not an oddity anymore. If you'd asked 20 years ago, you go to the, the surveys, something like 1% or 2% of Israelis would have called themselves progressive Jews, either reform or conservative. Today, that number is closer to 11, between 11 and 13%. Over, over two decades, that's a remarkable growth. Now, these aren't necessarily synagogue members or people that go every Friday night, but that's a huge, a huge boost. And within that, with any egalitarian Judaism um, in, in Israel, and I think we should also include here the more progressive and modern Orthodox uh, uh, branches that exist, because the amount of egalitarianism there, the ordination of women that is started very slowly and very in a very small way, but we start to see these, these worlds merge. So the creativity and the, and the, and just sort of the opulence of, of Jewishness and and Hebrew culture merging together is is just such an exciting thing for me. 
I want to add two pieces to that. Um, that number one, in addition to the miracle of the rebirth of the language and what it means to experience a Judaism in our native tongue with all the resonances from the ancient past to the recent past. Um, I think one thing that, that really strikes me being there is the melting pot, the, the ingathering of exiles that in America growing up, you know, we think about Jewish food as, as brisket and uh, chicken and matzo ball soup. And you go to Israel uh, because the vast majority of our ancestors as American Jews were Ashkenazi. And you go to Israel and you meet um, Yemenite Jews or Iraqi Jews or Moroccan Jews, um, Jews from all over the world who have in the last seven and a half decades or the last hundred years, let's say, um, uh, returned to our ancient homeland. And all of the, all of their culture and all of um, their food, it all is is mixing and merging in this incredibly beautiful and most often delicious um, way. Um, and I think it's just a, a much richer tapestry of Judaism than we often see in America. Not that there's not wonderful things happening in America, but I think um, that's a very very exciting piece. And then Absolutely. also. The idea of walking out of your house on Friday night and looking in every window that you pass and um, seeing people celebrating Shabbat dinner, it, the, the fact that just the general culture, even people who aren't religious, I, I don't know the statistics off the top of my head, but the vast, vast majority of Jewish Israelis, even if they don't consider themselves religious, have a Friday night dinner where they light candles and they're with their family um, or with their close friends. And it's just an incredibly beautiful um, and powerful tradition um, to have all around you. And that's very exciting. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think you said it so so well, just, you know, to add another layer of that, of the sort of the, the multicultural Judaism that that we met is, you know, at um, thinking back to my Kol Nidre experience not so long ago, um, we open with this, you know, uh, the, the Kol Nidre that we all know. Um, these this 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 melody that came out of Ashkenaz, right? This sort of central Western European Judaism, where it took shape and has now captured the hearts and minds of Jews all over the world. And in the middle of our Israeli Reform service, we sing a piyut called Adonas Lichot, right, where the tune and the words come out of North Africa. And then we ended by singing the words in Aramaic, Rachamana, right, where where uh, where and this tune it comes from the Hasidim, right, which comes from Eastern Europe. So within one prayer service, right? We've we've had these three different sources of Jewish creativity calling out to us throughout the centuries and us replicating them in the land of Israel, in the state of Israel. Um, it's, um, I think, it, um, empowering might be uh, the best, the best way that I can describe that feeling. So, so empowering, not only that we, Jews were the people of the book, right? Um, and the book we normally think about is the the Torah, the book. But many people would say that the Israeli literature being written as we speak, or the Israeli music being written as we speak, is equally as holy, is equally as meaningful and beautiful um, as as our ancient tradition. And the the font of creativity, the fount of creativity 
that exists in modern Israel. Um, not to say that there's not incredible English language uh, Jewish literature. Of course there is, and music. We're, we live in a renaissance of Jewish music in North America, and it is incredible. Um, but there's something about being the, the ability to be in conversation with the past when you have a Hebrew song, a modern song written in Hebrew with with references or or excerpts um, from Tanakh, from our Hebrew Bible, um, it's cl so clearly in conversation with the ancient uh, that that is just the creativity that the modern state of Israel enables. Yeah, and I just want to encourage everyone, if, if this is something that interests you, and this is something that, you know, the subject of, you know, Jewish, especially modern Israeli creativity, but also Jewish creativity through, throughout the ages, the new... Um, Israeli Reform Sidur, the new Israeli Reform prayer book. Um, it now has an English version for Shabbat, um, for Shabbat evening and Shabbat morning, and it contains, both in Hebrew and in transla transliteration and in English, pieces from our ancient texts, um, from the Torah, from, uh, from uh, you know, these ancient sources, but also from pieces taken from the Cairo Geniza, right, that was discovered or rediscovered by Solomon Schechter in the, the 19th century, um, and has pieces by Yuda Amichai and Nomi Shimmer and Zelda, these modern Hebrew poets, and I don't know if you will, prophets even as well, right, to write our modern Jewish experience. And to have these things married together, it's an incredible piece of uh, literature, and I, I just have happen to have the immense privilege of learning from uh, the, both of the editors of, of this project. Um, it's called Tefillat Adam, prayer of, uh, the prayer of man or the prayer of the human, uh, prayer of the heart, perhaps. I think it might be in English, but um, it's an incredible resource uh, and a, um, just so people can sort of have a, a sense of what that looks like. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. So we've talked a lot about the beauty of living in Israel, but of course there's also difficulties and challenges. And uh, the scale and scope of the challenge um, we have learned in the last month is much greater than really we believe for the last 20 years. Um, since the end of the Second Intifada, since the end of the Second Lebanon War um, and the disengagement um, in 2005 with Gaza, Israel has believed that um, even though there are threats, there are looming threats with Hezbollah in the north, uh, 150,000 rockets, many of them precision rockets that can be targeted um, anywhere in Israel. Um, Iran, uh, very close by, with uh, wishing the destruction, working towards the ability to destroy Israel. Um, there was a feeling of relative safety over the last 15 or 20 years. Um, that illusion, which on October 7th was shattered. Um, 1,400 people murdered in their homes. Um, the brutality of, of many of those murders, we're not going to mention. You, of course, have heard much of it and, and know where to look um, if you if you want to go into detail. But um, 250 approximately people kidnapped, taken into Gaza. Uh, the youngest, nine months old. Just so tragic to think now he's 10 months old. Um, Israelis for the last two decades felt safe in their homes. Um, now the 
And, and Israel was formed. Israel was formed um, with the promise. The state of Israel was formed with the promise that Jews would never be massacred in large numbers. Again, like we were for centuries in Europe, um, the promise of the state of Israel and having a Jewish army was that that would not happen again. And I think what's ha what happened on October 7th has really shaken Israel um, to its core, to its people wonder if that promise of Israel is still true. Um, so uh, just to sort of uh, dig digress a bit and, and just to sort of point out something in the in the um, framework of your question, I think you're 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 right, but I think we put a comma, and I think we also need to think about the Jews living in Otef Aza, the Gaza envelope, the 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 communities around Gaza, that for the past nearly twenty years now, you know, as someone living in Jerusalem between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, I did feel safe. Yes, there were times of of more danger, less danger. Uh, but the immediacy, right, 15 seconds for a rocket siren to go off and you to find a safe coverage in your home was a much different reality for them, and even more so now in the wake of October 7th. So I think I think one of the, what, what you're sort of referring to here is sort of this, uh, the destruction of all the conceptions we had about, about our reality and what it was. And I think one of... I think one of those well, sort of one of the failures of the conception is sort of the failure to imagine, right? The failure of an imagination of what was possible. Um, and some maybe even the failure to 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 listen exactly to the to the citizens of Sterot and Ashkelon and, and the communities of Otafaza, where, you know, for years, uh, especially since uh 2000 and uh uh, you know, after 2014, and then, um, you know, every couple of years after that, there's been sort of a, a, a small conflagration of, of shooting back and forth. And for them consistently calling out citizens and, and political leaders alike saying that something needs to change in this, in this equation. Um, I certainly don't place the blame on any one person's feet, any the feet of any one person here. And I understand the hesitancy to have wanted to move into a game-changing uh, or, or an equation-changing military adventure or operation in the past years because we all knew what it would cost, what it's currently costing. So can we explain, uh, and, Josh, can you explain yeah. what the conceptia was and what the yeah. kind of status quo was and why? Sure. I think you're alluding to why we were, or the, the leadership was willing to put up with it, wanted to keep it going. But what was that conception or the conception? Yeah. The, so, you know, we have this, this conception that um, these uh, sort of the conception, both in places in, you know, Israeli leadership, but also, I think also in the West, right. Uh, in my, when I say West here, I'm talking United States, uh, United Kingdom, Germany, France, you know, these, these critical Western allies for the state of Israel. It's conception that if we allow groups like Hezbollah and Hamas to maximize their political control, to maximize their the leadership of financial wealth, I'm sure many people have seen the economists and the numbers of just how wealthy the leaders of Hamas, who don't even live in the Gaza Strip, are. Uh, you know, talking billions of dollars. 
largely that's taken from foreign aid, right? Essentially, largely brought in from foreign aid or from friendly uh, sources in 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 the Muslim world. If we allowed them to to retain their control, uh, and we put up with sort of their uh, you know violent outbursts every once in a while, and just did this tit for tat, well, that could stay. And, and, and we just sort of like put to the side, yeah, you know, their charter is about the destruction of Israel and they say all these ridiculous things, but, you know, every group kind of says ridiculous things. So you know, they don't really mean it. Uh, and we we fall into these conceptions. We fall into understandings of, of how we see the world because they're comfortable, right? Not because we're bad people, not because we're ignorant, but because they, they work for us, right? They make living life um easier much more or much more um uh, it's just it's 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 just simpler to go about your everyday life if if this is if this is how you see things and unfortunately beyond even being the, the state of israel being the safe haven uh for you know bodily safety for jewish people the promise of israel is that we wouldn't make the same mistakes of the past when we heard someone saying we want to destroy the jewish people that we would listen, that we would say, okay, they've said it, once is enough. And if they say it, then they mean it, and we're going to treat it as such. Um, Israelis, uh, that's that's one piece of it. Israelis, uh, incredible technological advantage militarily was another another piece of it, right? Thinking that nothing could be built up, nothing could be, uh, this massive force couldn't be brought to bear without Israel truly looking it in the face and knowing exactly what was going to happen. And I think a third part of it was political. Um, under consecutive Netanyahu governments, um, as the promise of Oslo, the Oslo Accords the, that were meant to lead to a two-state solution faded away through the years, past the Second Intifada and, and beyond, the political equation, and this isn't me saying this, this is Netanyahu speaking at... Uh, um, different events over the years, um, strengthening Hamas and weakening the Palestinian authority, mainly the Fatah party in the West Bank, lowered the chances that Israel could be brought to a political agreement for two states. Because there is a large camp in Israel that opposes a two-state solution for many reasons, some ideological, some about security, um, I know that, uh, I, I, um, I know that it can be challenging, right. For American Jews to, to hear that, but it, but it should be understood that there's a, there's a huge part of the Israeli public that's very skeptical of two States, uh, well, especially post. Yeah, please. Yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah, I, I want to stay on this for a minute, um, because I think it's really important in understanding the Israeli mindset. Mm. So the Israeli left, um, the peace camp. Um, who was willing in, in Oslo um, and the, the traditional position of the Israeli left is land for peace. If we give up the land, if Israel gives up the land that was taken, uh, that, that Israel took in a, the defensive war of the Six-Day War, namely Gaza and the West Bank, and gives that state to the Palestinians, then um, they, that's a fair trade, a good trade, um, in order to get recognition that the state of Israel has a right to exist, and peace. The 
the breakdown of the Israeli left, where the Israeli left for the entire first uh, really four decades of the existence of the state of Israel, or, you know, uh, at least until 19... The 70s when Menachem Begin, the first yep. um, conservative prime minister, but even, even until 2000, the Israeli left was incredibly powerful. Um, they realized when they gave the, the Israeli government said, we're willing to give a very, very fair, excuse me, fair deal in the Oslo process, the Camp David Accords. And uh, what Arafat responded with, the leader of the Palestinians responded with, was a second intifada, was suicide bombers and um, uh, blowing up buses and discotheques. Um, And then five years later in 2005, when uh, also Ariel Sharon, um, not exactly a a peacenik. A a dove uh, by any stretch of the imagination, yeah. Exactly, not exactly a dove, says, you know what, Um, we we realize that the uh, Palestinians are not necessarily going a partner for peace. They're not going to uh, come to a negotiated agreement that failed a few years ago, but we don't want to be occupying Gaza. The West Bank is different for a number of reasons, which we can talk about, but we no longer want to occupy Gaza. Um, And so we're going to unilaterally pull out without an agreement, but we want to give them the chance to build their own society. And then immediately in the first elections held, um, Hamas wins. That's a little bit complicated. Hamas didn't quite get a majority, but they had a plurality. Um, but Hamas wins. They take they take over, and imme- instead of building Ritz Carltons with with Saudi and Qatari and Emirati money, um, and building beautiful resorts and building agricultural fields, um, they start shooting rockets at Israel and trying to destroy Israel. And so the the whole um, idea behind the Israeli lefts their conception that if we give up land, we'll have peace completely broke down. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and not like, not only so, right. The idea of land for peace, uh, um, you know, in these odd twists of, of, of political and historical circumstance, the only, the only prime minister to successfully implement land for peace Hmm. was Menachem Begin, right. Who implements land for peace in the 1970s with Egypt. and Menachem Begin is a conserv- the the first the conservative first, prime minister, the first Likud prime minister of the state of Israel, and the peace treaty with Egypt from 1979 until now holds. It's not. We don't love each other. Right? We're not sitting around uh, 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 sitting around the campfire singing Heven Shalom Aleichem, but it's peace, yeah, and it's held. That's great. The breakdown of the uh of the conception of land for peace started even before that right even before the second intifada because in the wake of signing you know the the very famous photo of arafat uh rabin and clinton on the on the hill on the white house lawn the question would they shake hands they end up shaking hands they're signing the agreements there's this real hope for peace in israel can't we can't overlook the fact that this is this is when hamas starts implementing the first suicide bombings in Israel, 1993, 94, 95, right? People are being killed in terror attacks by the same group that we're talking about now, it's Hamas. And so for Israelis, right? I think about, you know, my my contemporary Israelis, you know, I think about, you know, the early 2000s. I'm in middle school, right? Moving up to high school in 2005. I, you know, we're, we're living in a post 9-11 uh, America, but 
all of it's happening so far away, right? All of it, none of, none of it feels like it's hitting home to me, right? Everything is happening in these faraway places. But my my Israeli contemporaries can can all tell you about the conversation was where do we sit on the bus? You know how 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 close can we be to an open window? So perhaps the blast impact can go past us. You know they all have a story of of you know one day uh, their their classmate was there and the next day their classmate wasn't there anymore. Um, people have stories about you know the. You know, the bus they didn't get on because they missed it that day or because their grandmother called them and they got off a, a stop early. You know, it's now in Flint next to Dizengoff Center or Ganapamonim and Jerusalem, where, you know, wherever it is. And this is the, this is the, the experience, the sort of the shaping experience of what would have been my early teenage years. And so. Yeah, this 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 uh, this sort of political uh, um distance between the vast majority of American Jews who look at the left as a political home uh, versus the vast majority of Israelis who are now very skeptical of can the left keep us safe? And that at the end of the day, when Israelis go to vote at the polls, that is overwhelmingly what they're thinking about. Who is going to keep us safe? You know, for example, the current prime minister Netanyahu has sold himself in Hebrew as Mr. Security, right? That's been his moniker that he sold people for so many years. And and up until now, um, some of that was true, or was true at least in some way, shape, or form. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is, I think it is important when we're thinking and looking at all these things just sort of a general comment about all of it to, to try as best as we can to sort of remove our America goggles, right? Take off the lenses that we look at as, as, as American citizens and try our best to understand uh, the conflict and everything going on, especially right now, not through um, uh, uh, frameworks that work for American history and American society, but rather in the context in which it happened. And I, that's that's such a good point. I think I hope we'll come back to that later in the podcast when we talk about rising anti-Semitism, especially on the American left. I think so much of the mistake the American le left makes when looking at this conflict is trying to apply the lessons of America, racial lessons of America, uh, uh, dynamics that exist in American society and apply them entirely inappropriately and incorrectly to what's happening in Israel. But let's come back to that. And I, and I want to uh, spend a little time on um, your where you were on October 7th and um, how how you um, started to process what was happening. So October 7th, Shabbat, Simchat Torah, I, I, I just I remember it so vividly because of everything that happened afterwards. And it seems so silly in hindsight. My biggest concern as sort of rousing uh, in the morning, I hadn't, I, you know, hadn't slept all that well. I, I was, we had a bar mitzvah that day and I didn't feel very prepared for it. So my concern was, Hey, am I ready for this? Is this going to go well? And then at six 30, uh, the sirens um, uh, have started in the South. They haven't reached Tel Aviv yet, but I've gotten a text, uh, a message from on WhatsApp from, 
my colleague that's helped, we're leading the, the, the ceremony together. Sirens here, expect changes to the plans. I'm looking at him like, sirens in Holon, like really just southeast of Tel Aviv. I'm like, what? And all of a sudden, I hear the siren go off in North Tel Aviv, where I live, near the park. All three, you know, my, me and my two roommates, we we poke our heads out really, like, is this, is this, is that a sign? Like, just like trying to grapple with, you know, and yet, you know, we're all young, each other. somebody get a key, right? So that we don't get locked out of our apartment, you know, out on the stairwell. Everyone's in the stairwell because that's what my building has. It's a, it's a relatively older building and it doesn't have a bomb shelter in it. And, you know, that first siren passes and I open up the news and I, I really, uh, I, you know, I don't know what the experience was like sitting in, in the States as you all woke up as, you know, we were five or six hours into, you know, sort of this nightmare of a day um, and, and, you know, would continue to be a nightmare for so many families. But it was very clear something huge was happening, something very different would it happen? But the details were so unclear. Everything was so chaotic. I mean, we really, we now know looking back as we were watching at the utter breakdown of every Israeli um, network of security, of defense, of governance within this several kilometer radius around the Gaza Strip. There's an utter breakdown of all of it. Um, uh, you know, I was, I was lucky. You know, I, I am lucky to have you know good friends. I, I said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to you all. You all have the bomb shelter because we just, I sort of instinctively knew. We all instinctively knew that um, this wouldn't be the last siren of the day, and it certainly wasn't. Um, just today, I was reminded there were over three thousand rockets fired at Israel in that first twenty-four hour period. Ninety five hundred total so far. Yeah, yeah, and one, yeah, one third of that, right? In that first first day, I mean, it was it was, uh, um, and I spent I spent the next you know twenty four hours at, at you know with these close friends going back and forth from from the uh, from from the bomb shelter in their house, texting friends to make sure that you know their their family members you know one of. One of my one of my rabbinical school classmates, her brother was at the at the music festival. Thank God he was one of the lucky ones that was able to, mm. get, you know, run away and board a bus and get back to the center. But it took hours for them to get back in touch with him. So they're, you know, um, uh, and but, uh, you know, within the first. It was it was it was abundantly clear. Um, and he, eerily quiet on the streets of Tel Aviv. Uh, even at even Shabbat is sort of a quiet day in Tel Aviv, but no day is really quiet in Tel Aviv. But it was just so clear that something was different. Something had changed. Um, and uh, I mean, just the 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 attempt to, to turn away from it, not listen and not look and not check and not, and not reload and not scroll uh, but you just you couldn't. I mean, it was just happening so fast um, and and uh, so frantic. Um, it was. Um, I mean, it really was terrifying. Um, um, I don't know. I I've said this to other people, so I've described it. 
sort of been two days in my life where I know I've lived through a history changing events. The first one, I was a child. It was 9-11. Um, but I could see on the face of the adults around me. You could feel it. It was really palpable that something, something huge had happened and that whatever it was before is not going to be the same. And it was, it was sort of, you know, academically interesting, you know, emotionally terrifying, but academically interesting to live through another experience like that in, in my 30s and and know that pre-October 7th and post-October 7th uh, for Israel, for the Jewish people, for the region, that was going to be a completely different reality. Mm. So you talked a little bit, Josh, about the breakdown of the army, the military. Uh, many people waited um, over 12 hours, some 24 hours in their shelter. Um, the ones who figure out how to lock their shelter door. Um, many of them uh, called family um, ha with terrorists literally outside their the room trying to get in. Um, there's a famous story of Amir Tibone, a uh, journalist for Haaretz, who lived in um, Far Aza, right on the, the border, I believe, Far Aza, one of the communities uh, right across from Gaza, maybe Kibbutz Be'eri. I'm not... I think it's not Nachalos. Ah, not, thank you. Nachalos. Yep. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yep. Nachalos. Um, and he texted his dad, a, yeah. um, IDF general, retired general, um, who got in his car, his little personal car from somewhere in the Tel Aviv area with a pistol, um, and said, I'm going to come save my, my children and my grandchildren. And it's a really harrowing and, um, heroic story. Um, he, he ends up making it and, and saving many people along the way, um, and soldiers, um, he ends up getting a, a bigger gun um, from a wounded soldier and uh, kills a number of terrorists on the way and um, frees his family. And um, Amir tells the story over and over. Um, and I, I heard him tell it once on a, on a Zoom call. And he said um, he finally knew who he was safe. Um, when he he told his daughter, or his daughter told him, Saba Higia, uh, yeah. grandpa's here. Yeah. And it's yeah. just an incredible story. Yeah. Um, but that that story is one of a private citizen um, stepping in. And that is really the story of this, this whole disaster, uh, was the story of private citizens stepping up and responding. Um, and I'm wondering, Josh, if you can share a little bit about what different groups or different individuals have done um, in the wake of this disaster. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, sort of the utter, I mean, we were listening like live on Israeli news. There were people calling into news desks from their safe rooms, begging for the journalists for help because no one was, no one was coming. No one, the army had lost control. I mean, for the first time since 1948, Israel had lost territorial settlements to an outside invading party. It's not a big country. I mean, no, a helicopter no. could get from one end to the other in a matter yeah. of minutes. Yeah. Size of Jersey. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so this terror, I mean, this terrifying breakdown and its horrific consequences. I mean, we, uh, it, Beit Daniel, the synagogue I work with in, in Tel Aviv, uh, a young man, um, uh, Yuval Ben Yaakov was a soldier at one of the bases there. And it was on Shabbat levels of, of, of preparedness. 
And this is not to say anything, the soldiers did anything wrong. They follow the orders to be prepared for what they were told to be prepared for. And these young men and women in their 20s, you know, um, kids were were woefully unprepared um, and not given the tools and the and the warning that they needed uh, to do their jobs, to keep each other safe, to keep themselves safe, to keep the communities that they were um, asked to guard, commanded to guard safe. Um, I think so much has come out already and so much will continue to come out um, in the months and the years to come about the individual heroism of that day. And I'm, I'm going to totally blank on names for all of these stories, but the ones that come to mind are um, the Bedouin um, ambulance driver that did several back and forths to take survivors of the horrible massacre at that music festival. Um, you know, risking obviously his own life to, to save these people Jews, non-Jews, you know, everyone is there, but to go back and forth and put himself in harm's way, the, the medics that were at the festival survived this. I was just listening to a, a gentleman speak uh, the other day on the news and he was just administering some like light first aid to someone and a group of soldiers that had finally showed up, looked at him and said, Hey, are you a medic? And he said, yeah, that's my training. And they said, you're coming with us and no uniform, no helmet, no nothing. But they needed a medic. They needed someone that could give life-saving first aid in the event. And so he he went around with this, this small team of soldiers, you know, trying to, to do their best. Um, you know, people like Noam Tifon, Amir's uh, father, absolutely um should be lauded. But and and I I I hope that all these stories of heroism are written into the chronicles of our, our people, the chronicles of our nation. But I don't I don't want us to overlook the the institutional uh, failings that led to the necessity of this. Because what should have happened is that the army should have been prepared. I, I, you know, I'm certainly no expert on warfare or this, but um, the warnings were there. Um, The, the, uh, the young uh, female soldiers of the IDF, whose job it is to look at drone footage and look at camera footage and coverage of the Gaza Strip and other things that had been saying for days and weeks in advance, like, hey, something in my sector is weird. Something here is happening. And the message that they got over and over, nope, it's all it's all normal. It's all fine. Um, you know, there would be a lot of time uh, afterwards also, not only to tell the stories of heroism, but also to ask really tough questions about where these feelings were and um, what I can hope for and what we all hope for as a nation is first and foremost that we emerge from this victorious, that the hostages are brought home um, in one piece, safely, healthily. Uh, and also afterwards that we look at the leadership and they look at themselves and, and, the, and, Whoever, whoever had responsibility, and I want to give credit to some of them, right? The head of some of the security forces, some of them, some of these leadership positions have come forward and said, we bear responsibility for this. After this is over, after this mission is completed um, and 
peace has been brought to the Gaza Strip area, Hamas has been dismantled, we will resign our jobs and allow other people to do the necessary um, inquiries into what had happened. And so those people deserve at least sort of the credit to understand what leadership demands. Um, but, um, you know, so many people will be carrying this on their souls uh, for, for many, many years to come. No question. No question. And I do think as an American observer of this, one of the things that is stri- really striking in the day, in the days, and even, even till this day, uh, in the days after and to this day, I, I see Sippy Livni, you know, on the, on the left. Um, I see Ayala Shaked on the, not the most far right anymore, but definitely right of center. Um, and everybody in between saying, look, we are standing together. We are, um, we are united and we'll figure out what happened later. But right now um, we are united and we're standing together. And literally the day of, of these attacks or the next day, I remember watching cable TV in America and American politicians trying to use this for their for their own political advantage, saying, oh, if we had been in power, this never would have happened. Um, and it's it's just really striking to see in America politicians trying to use this for their own political gain when in Israel itself, um, people are putting country over party. Um, and it's it, it is something, I think, inspiring about Israel and um, really quite unique. In the yeah. world. To, to for the entire last last thing I want to say is for the entire last year, we I mean I preached about this on Yom Kippur. We spoke about this the uh, incredible division in Israel society. One of the most divided times in Israeli history, if not the most, maybe not the most, but definitely top three. And um, it, on the verge of civil war in in uh, some people's eyes, and yet uh, just a a week after I gave that sermon. Um, on Yom Kippur about how Israel is more divided than ever. Now Israel is more united than ever. Um, and yeah. it's really just an incredible, incredible story. Yeah. I mean, if, if, yes, if we can sort of look at sort of the, the, the beams of light shining through all this, I think you, you've nailed it with within 48 hours, the the primary protest movement had dismantled itself as a protest movement and re reassembled itself as a movement of, collection support and distribution of goods services food clothes um care whatever it was to the soldiers to their families to whoever needed it um uh, and you know my colleague um um Galit Cohen Kedem was the, the rabbi and Cholon said it so well um about the current leadership and just the incredible and consistent um call to action and service of the Israeli public of the Israeli of Israeli society, uh, she said that um, it's just this government truly doesn't deserve its people. It really doesn't. Um, the Israeli, uh, you know, kitchens in Tel Aviv of restaurants that if you'd ask them about be anything about kosher the week before, they said, "Don't even come near me with that word. Don't even mention kosher in this restaurant. How dare you try to bring that in here?" The same people costuring their kitchens in order to be able to serve hot meals to the to the IDF. Um, uh, people driving their personal cars down to the south to the to the greenhouses and to the gardens, picking up 
plants and 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 uh, and produce, bringing it up to the center for people to buy it, who didn't feel safe to go down there, but would come up, and then the money would be brought back to the people and the agriculture workers of the South that, that don't have that income anymore. I mean, just care um, and compassion on um, just uh, what a what a reminder it is how important it is to be reminded that we are one people and we can be an incredible tribe when we when we want to. Um, I mean, it's devastating and it's heartbreaking that these are the circumstances that brought it out of us. But if we didn't have it in us, if we weren't able to do this, um, then, um, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be where we are in history. Um, and it's an incredible thing to be a part of. I wish we could talk all day about the, really the true heroism of Israeli, just normal citizens and the Hamal, the, the civilian command center and the logistics that have been set up. Um, it is truly remarkable. And, um, I think Israel is unique among societies in the world that in the, the midst of, of such tragedy and shock could come together and create just something incredibly powerful and incredibly effective um, in serving those in need. Uh, but I do want to talk as an American, as an American and an Israeli, you are uniquely positioned to understand um, both what diaspora, what Israeli Jews are going through and diaspora Jews are going through. You've been living the last few weeks with your sister in London. Um, and I know you've been talking to friends and family in America. What is your sense of, uh, how does it feel to be a diaspora Jew in this moment? Um, um, there was an event at, uh, Beit Daniel the other evening, marking the Shiloshim, the 30 days since the, uh, the, uh, horrific massacre, massacres of, October 7th, and uh, President Andrew Rehfeld of Hebrew Union College spoke to give a, a diaspora Jewish perspective. And I think he opened with these words, and I, I think it's just so it's prescient and, and never more clear than now. Um, you know, to, to be a Jew is to, is to feel isolated. Um, and to be a Jew now is even more, is to feel even more isolated. You know, we've come together in such an amazing way, both in Israel, but also, you know, abroad. I see the the sermons and the uh, rallies and the events and the uh, challah baking and the uh, uh, kippah, the yarmulke knitting events that people are holding as shows of solidarity. And I know that people are finding the strength of coming together. But I also know that we're all feeling a little bit more vulnerable than we did just a little bit more than a month ago. I fall into the camp of, um, in spite of my, you know, my my training in history and and my uh, learning about our our journey in places as far and as wide from Iraq to Poland to Morocco to Spain, where every place that we've been at some point or another, Jew hatred has become part of that story. I, I belong to the camp where I it's so it's a little embarrassing to admit, but I think I was a bit naive. I think I was a bit naive about 
Jew hatred. And, and I think it had been creeping in from the peripheries for me for several years. But to see what has been unleashed. And of course, it didn't start from October 7th. It is everything that had been allowed to be built up uh, until then over the past, you know, decade, two decades. Um, to see the calls of, you know, the, the one that's giving a lot of attention right now is, you know, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free because of um, Congresswoman Tlaib's uh, uh, tweet, maybe even standing on the floor of Congress and then her being censured uh, by the House. But to see not only that, but to, to you know, in Sydney, Australia, the Opera House, people yelling gas the Jews openly, right? In the, like, in the open, in public. And thousands of people. Thousands of people, right? These were ideas that were absolutely anathema, right? You couldn't say these things in public 20 years ago. Or for these marches to also, uh, you know, have hold up signs of, you know, the Jewish star in the wastebasket, right? You know, saying to clean up, we need to clean up the world in the streets of Warsaw. And um, I think somewhere else I, I saw this or to have not be, you know, other cries like Chayba uh, El Yehud, which is a, a cry um, which goes back to the, the days of uh, the earliest Islam, which was a um, a routing of a Jewish community in a place called Chaybar in the, in the Arabian Peninsula by the armies of, of Muhammad, the armies of Islam in their early, earliest days. Or, you know, Muhammad's army will rise again on, on these signs. Um, oh, you know, uh, the... Uh, even at UCLA, there were, there were people, you know, screaming about, you know, death to Jews. And I mean, just things that as a kid, as a Jewish kid of the 90s, you know, again, it sounds naive, but I'm, I'm truly shocked and appalled by all of it. And I think we need to, speaking as a Jew that belongs to the political left, belong to the political left somewhere, you know, I'm not sure where I am at the moment, just with everything going on. But I think it it's gonna we we need to do a lot of introspection. Um, when I think about politics and you know how badly we all, wherever we sit on the political spectrum, you know, especially in sort of the 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 the, the two two parts spectrum that that America has, right? You're either one or the other, right? Red or blue, right or left. And how much we always want the other side to change, right? We're always convinced, you know, why don't these people have the right ideas? We want them to change. I'm of the opinion we can only ever worry about our little courtyard of politics. We can only ever clean up and change what's on our side. And so for me, coming from where I come from and, and you know, the, the, the groups and the, sort of the ideas that I belong to, we really need to do some deep introspection of how we got, how we got here, how we've allowed both in ourselves and our own politics, but how we've allowed our political so-called allies around us to create a movement in which everyone counts, right? Sort of a basic idea of small liberalism, the American left, right? Really looking at the value of each and every human life. Somehow, we don't, right? Jews don't count. Our um, our experience as 
a minority group doesn't doesn't matter, right? It doesn't that it, it doesn't fit into the particular frameworks that the American left has used to explain the world in the past uh, past decades. Um, and I mean, just so we have a lot a lot of work to do. Um, don't get me wrong. We have, we have a lot of allies. So I, I don't, I don't want this to be a, I really don't want to keep this as far from like doomsday thinking as, as possible, but there's a lot of work. There's a lot of work to do. Yeah, I do. I do think it's important to, um, to keep the perspective of what is the scale of, of these people on the far left who are making a lot of noise and of course, getting a lot of attention. Um, but is what percentage of the Democratic Party is that? Is that 25%? Is it 12%? Is it 5%? You know, it's really hard to know. But I do think uh, the it, it's right to look critically at the ideology that has led us to this place. Because um, I think that that ideology is pervading um, the college campuses, of course. And and is likely is spreading and is likely to spread more. Yep. Um, and when you when when Jews went to the women's march, or went to Black Lives Matter, or you know name your progressive cause, um, which many of our friends and colleagues and congregants um, found ourselves or proud to be among those. Um, Marching with, donating to, voting for. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I think that when when we as Jews stand up for many other groups, um, it's it's really scary and and kind of rips your heart out to realize nobody's standing up for us. Yeah. Very few people are standing up for us. And I do think I, I want to talk for a couple of minutes about why not. Why and and we might not have all the answers, but we can postulate. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think part of the ideology that um, or part of the understanding of the world as Americans that there are um, that Jews are white, for example, um, and white people, according to this kind of way of thinking, are privileged, and um, many in this ideology are, hold that there are you're either an oppressor or you're oppressed, um, and therefore, if you're Jewish, that means you're white, and white people in America are oppressors. Mm-hmm. Um, Leaving aside for the fact that, you know, there's 330 million people in this country and uh, deciding on someone's character based on the color of their skin uh, seems to be uh, lacking in imagination, to say the least. Um, In Israel, more than half the Jews are not white. Right. Um, Yeah. More more than half the Jews are Mizrahi. Right. And, And Ethiopian. Um, so that that kind of breaks down on its just is incorrect on its face. Yeah. Um, but I guess there there is a question in here, which is, what do you, Josh, um, see as a or do you have any ideas about what might be either a path out or at the very least a response? Because uh, Barry Weiss in her book, How to Fight Anti-Semitism, I think makes a really, really good point. She says, um, those of us that are on the American left are not going to convince 
the the far right anti-Semites um, not to be anti-Semitic. And those on the right are not going to convince the far left not to be anti-Semitic. But if we somehow can call out or call in the people that are in our own political camp, um, perhaps that is a way to, at the margin, make a difference. Yeah. Um, I don't even think that we can reach the far left, right? I mean, I, I think I think we're speaking about people that hold extreme, uh, you know, ideas that sit at an extreme of any spectrum. I don't think that's our target audience. I don't think that's what we need to be. Um, that's that's what we need to be looking to to speak to. But what I think we need to, uh, I, I think you sort of put. I actually want to add one more idea Please. that comes out of you know the political left that this is one of the the great in their minds the, the condemnations of of Israel. This idea of uh, settler colonialism, right? That the Jews are just another extension of Europe that have no place in the Middle East. They have no belonging to the Middle East. They have no connection to the Middle East. And they've come in as, Euro as Europeans, um, you know, extension of take it back to wherever you want, the Crusades or, you know, modern colonialism, whatever it is. And... Um, this, you know, and I think sort of the danger in all these ideas is they're particularly pernicious because they're very difficult to combat because the sentiment that we all believe in, I think, is that colonialism in and of itself, right, where a foreign nation comes into a nation that didn't ask them to be there and say, we now run this show. We're going to take everything that's yours for ours. That's a, that's not, it's not a good idea, right? We don't see that as a morally correct thing to do. Um, we can look at the United States history and we can see in its systems and we can see in its laws the uh, preference for people of lighter skin color. We can look back at that and we can know that these things are true. Um, but I think it's a particular there's it's, it's a particular academic and moral arrogance to come and take these frameworks and ideas and place them on different things around the world, whether it's, I don't know, whatever's happening, whether it's the conflict between uh, Greece and Cyprus, um, the conflict right now, you know, that's raging in Pakistan and Afghanistan as the Afghanistan is, is um, um, expelling over a million uh, people, you know, you know, the, the the unique history and circumstances that have created things here don't necessarily work over here. Now, how do we how do we combat this? Well, I think some some very important steps have been taken. I think you're looking at big time Jewish donors to these universities who are pulling their fund and their funding and saying, listen, as long as as long as from your university, you're allowing people to come in and teach these ideas that specifically view Jews as a threat, as this particularly, um, you know, mysterious and privileged group that can never be uh, uh, oppressed because they are the eternal oppressors. Well, then I, you know, I can't, uh, I can't support you here. I think there is, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, there are steps of, using the tools that we have at our disposal now to take the things that people are 
creating, right? Whether that's uh, the student groups on campuses and saying like, listen, this is what they're saying. This is what they're supporting. And, um, you know, that there are consequences to your actions if you support a terrorist organization, if you laud the actions of a terrorist organization. And while I am, you know, I, you know, some of these things might make, make people uncomfortable, but you go out and we have these tools at our disposal to look at these people that are tearing down posters of kidnapped Jews and non-Jews, by the way, right? There, there are dozens of non-Jews, non-Israelis in Hamas captivity right now that are also remembered on these posters in, in cities all around the world. And people coming out and ripping these signs down. I just I mean, it's it's it belies just a shocking and deeply troubling lack of humanity in my eyes. Um, but to film these people, right? To to show to have these moments on on film to, because you know we you. It's 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 interesting when you when you live outside of the United States for a while, people look at the United States and they sort of look at us and they see sort of this extreme right we have of free speech, right? We say a lot of things in the United States where people around the world are like, how in the world do people say these things and get away with it? Well, what doesn't come with free speech is a freedom from from consequence. So if you choose to ally yourself with these groups, if you choose to make statements and you choose to do all these things, then okay, you've made a choice. And then everyone else gets to make a choice um, with with uh, how that uh, with how that um, works. To speak, I think specifically to these these left wing academic ideas that have these either unintentional, but I fear more and more that they're intentional blind spots about Jew hatred. Um, I think that's going to be a longer a longer battle. Um, we should demand of our leadership, of the people who represent us, that that we need to understand their stances on these things. We should demand that in diversity, equity, and inclusion education, that is an important thing to do, that it's not based on a code of um, uh, that's the depending on uh you know that 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 skin color is the determining factor of whether someone is is in a, a um you know minority or an oppressed or, or threatened group we should we should make sure that all these places that are teaching about um inclusion uh that that the Jewish story is included uh and present and understanding that while anti-semitism and Jew hatred, you know, all these sort of hatreds of, of different minority groups sort of mingle in the same sort of area. But we should demand that that this hatred is also a little bit different because it predates America. It predates the United States. It predates the white-black dialectic. It, it predates colonialism. The idea of Jews as the eternal outsider from right or from left, doesn't matter where. But that's that's the story, right? Jew hatred doesn't start uh, in the new world, but it comes to the new world uh, and and takes on new new forms and functions. So, I I'm still working through myself. How do we combat these ideas? How do we stop 
these correct moral stances on historical phenomenon, uh, phenomena to uh, be used against uh, the Jewish people uh, in 2023 and beyond. I don't have the idea yet, but it's definitely what we, we need to be working to, to find. So I want to wrap up soon. Um, and I, I want to end with a little Torah, a little, maybe a little bit of hope, but I, I do, if we could just spend another couple of minutes on one of your ideas, um, which is the, uh, well, actually, I just want to point out one anecdote and highlight what you just said, that DEI offices, diversion, equity, diversity, equity, and inclusion offices, uh, too often uh, do not stand up for the rights of Jews to be included. And if you look at the statement of Harvard's DEI office, for example, in the last week, and Bill Ackman um, pointed this out, he said, uh, who, who's the legendary hedge fund manager who's kind of leading the uh, charge against stopping these donors from giving to these institutions that are clearly being incredibly anti-Semitic. And he said he was in touch with the DEI office and said, look, we are essentially protecting the rights of people of color, of LGBTQ people, um, and of women. And if you're not one of those, then you're the problem, you know, that, that we're not standing up for you. And it's a, a, I think it's, we have to open our eyes. We really, as American Jews, have to open our eyes to what these people are saying in order to fix the problem. Um, but I think the most pernicious of these left-wing, far-left-wing ideologies that are taking hold and that are convincing so many people, not just on the far left, but on the moderate left in the center, that, that Israel is um, such a problem, is the settler colonialist notion, the, the notion that Israel and Jews are settler colonial colonialists. Um, and I, that's the reason why in the immediate aftermath, before Israel even responded, that they were saying, this massacre is Israel's fault. They deserve this. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you, you spoke about uh, what the settler colonialist myth is, that Jews are settlers or colonialists from Europe. Um, can you talk about uh, why that's not true? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, sort of briefly, you know, point out what colonialism is, right? And what, you know, the idea of settler colonialism is where uh, the uh, a particular European power sends out sentries or foot soldiers or, or settlers to go to a place, occupy it, run it and most importantly to financially benefit and take all of the precious resources from the place to feed the colonial power and enrich the colonial right the the colonial power whatever that is and we saw that model portuguese spanish french english you name it Amer united states of america of course the difference What's the difference? And it's sort of a twofold, a twofold answer. One has an ancient uh, root, and I know that there are plenty of modern, uh, um, you know, ranging secular and reformed Jews in the United States that have a problem with this. So I'll, I'll take a second tack, but I, I encourage you all uh, to dive into this understanding and research this understanding a little bit more. 
One is the idea of indigeneity, right? Sort of these competing ideas of colonialists who who belongs to be in a place because they're because uh, they're indigenous, they belong there, and who doesn't because they're a colonialist, they're an outsider, they don't belong there, they, they don't belong, they're not native to the land. I would just ask all of our Jewish non-Jewish listeners to where are to where's the Jewish people indigenous, right? Where does the Jewish people come from? Um, and and if uh, I'll, I'll come back to that in a second, but you know, we it's not just the Bible. We don't just need to use the Bible, right? We have uh, sources from other peoples around the Assyrians, the Egyptians, you know, surrounding nations in the ancient world, talking about the Hebrews, Beit David, the house, the lineage, the house of David, the monarchy of David linking the Jewish people to the land of Israel. Going back 3,000 years. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously the story is one of expulsion, right? Beginning at, you know, the sort of the beginning of what we call the common era in 70, and then again in 115 at the end of the Bar Kokhba revolt. And the majority, the, 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 vast majority of Jews not living in the land of Israel from that point, spreading to places like what we call in Hebrew Bavel, which is modern-day Iraq, North Africa, uh, through the Roman Empire into Europe, spreading out through Europe. Uh, but nowhere in all of this time, in all of these centuries, were we ever considered native, right? None of these places ever saw us as we we might have been seen in in some of the places in the the Arab and Muslim world in Iraq and Morocco, we were seen as part we were seen as part of the fabric of society. We we're absolutely welcome. Things were for the vast majority of the history good, right, and solid and stable and 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 um, peaceful. And, and peaceful. Yeah, but we it was never ours, right? It was we were always a minority group that all too often when the edge of the knife, unfortunately, turned toward us from one of these groups, right? Be it uh, the native Iraqis in Iraq or the Cossacks in Eastern Europe, all of a sudden, the same people who were looking out for us before would be gone. And so if we, we're not home in any of these places, are we the only nation in the world that's doomed to not have a home, to not be able to call somewhere our own, to not belong do not have any indigeneity. I have a huge issue with this. And I know these sort of concepts make us uncomfortable to talk about indigeneity when it clashes with these ideas of, of race and whiteness in America. But um, I, I really encourage us all to, to, to lean into these ideas and to, to research and to think more about them and consider them because where else could we possibly call home for the Jewish people? Um, and then if we're looking at it from a modern sense, if you, if you say, well, I can't, I can't stomach the ancient stuff, right? It ha doesn't have any any bearing on the present. Fine, fine. So look at the present. Look at the present. Look at Europe. Look at, even as Europe was modernizing, even as Europe was promising Jews full civil rights and social acceptance, it was never given. Even as uh, the, the, uh, the Middle East is modernizing and uh, uh, things, you know, there's you know, opportunities being brought there. The, the the place of Jews in that society is shifting and changing because of everything going on in the world 
around them. And so when Jews needed refuge, right, when Jews needed a place to go to flee Europe, you know, our ancestors, you know, yours and mine, uh, uh, Jeff, were lucky enough to arrive to America when there was no such thing as an immigration law, right? You showed up and you got in. That was that was the rules. But by the 1910s and the 1920s, those weren't the rules anymore. The gates were closed. There was no immigrating anymore to America. And so in the height of uh, uh, the, the greatest threat facing the Jewish people as the 1920s turned to the 1930s, all over Europe uh, and, and, and Greece and North Africa, where there was nowhere to go. The United Kingdom was closed. France was closed. Uh, South America was closed. Australia was closed. Very famously, there's a conference held right before World War II breaks out. And, and everyone says, we don't, want, we don't want any of these people, right? We don't want any of these Jews. I think even Australia, right, the, the quote was, we don't have a racial problem in Australia now. We don't want one, hmm. right? Because the Jews bring with them a racial problem, right? That's, that's, that's what happens. And so the only place where Jews could go was to, to the British mandate of Palestine. That, that was the only place that was open even a little bit for Jewish immigration. It was only a small number. A lot of the Jews had to illegally migrate there because they couldn't get the, the limited amount of passes that were handed out by the British who were then in control. So the idea that the Jews are some sort of extension of something else coming to the land of Israel, taking things for someone else, or coming in because we 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 just we can, right? Just just uh, uh on a lark is 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 false. But it's tied up in the same idea. The same people that will tell you, well, Israelis are white, right? So, well, then Israelis must be colonialists. They must be European. They don't belong here. And, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, I, I hate sort of these sort of glib, these sort of glib sayings, but, you know, we we heard for years in Europe, Jews go home. And then we did. <laughs> and and then the people said, well, you don't belong here either. So, um you know, we we do belong somewhere, right? First of all, we belong wherever we are, right? We're human beings. We have every right to live wherever we choose to go. But we also have the special, deep, ancient, and modern connection to this small piece of land in the Middle East. Um, and we can argue about borders some other time. We can say, you know, what we think the, the final status borders and what a peace proposal or a two-state solution would look like. But we're we're home. We're not colonizing. It's home. Thank you for that really, really powerful and important answer, Josh. Um, the only the only two things I want to add, and I promise I'll do it quickly because I know it's late over there in London. But um, no, this is this is uh, we could keep talking about this for three or four hours. I think, uh, yeah. Well, we, we'd love to have you on again, uh, but I, I think it's important to say it wasn't as if the Jews lived there 2,000 years ago and um, mo moved around the world and then came back. I mean, that that would be a legitimate reason to return if that were the only uh, if that were the only part of the story. But Jews have lived there continuously, right? The entire Absolutely. time, Jews have lived there continuously the entire time, whether in Jerusalem or the Galilee, um, yep. various, you know, Tel Aviv was founded in the early 1900s, 1904, yeah. three or four, you know, you know, the exact year. A, lo a longer 1909 is Tel Aviv, but there was longer, there was centuries of Jewish 
life in what we call the Gaza Strip today, right? And now we've just celebrated, you know, 115 or 100, yeah, 115 of, of Tel Aviv. So it, it's, we're in, we're in the, we're truly in the soil of, of this land, of this place. No question. And I, I want to share just one idea um, from Haviv Retagur, uh, I think one of the most important and well-informed um, and uh, just great analysts of what's happening today. Um, he says he believes the brutality of what Hamas did on October 7th and the entire philosophy behind uh, why they are so brutal um, is that he they believe that the Jews are settler, that they are settler colonialists. And if you look at every other successful response to get colonialist powers out of the uh, their colonies, is if you are brutal enough, um, if you can inflict enough damage on them, uh, they will leave. They will say life is untenable in this colony. We can no longer put up with these losses that that, that the natives are inflicting upon us. And so they pack up and go home. Right. But the problem is, for the Jews, Israel is our home. We have nowhere else to go. Yep. That's exactly right. And that's what President President Biden has reminded us several times in his interaction with uh, Prime Minister Golda Meir. That's the secret, is that we, we have nowhere else to go. Um, and, and again, this doesn't, nothing in what we've talked about should negate in any way anyone's Jewish identity lives outside of Israel or, you know, there's, or, or you know, to live a completely full and meaningful Jewish life, uh, not, in, not in Israel. But I think many of the people listening will have traveled to Israel before in the past and will understand what we're talking about, the feeling of being home the feeling of belonging, the feeling of like, there's something, there's something here that I can't quite put my finger on, but I, I, I belong to it and it belongs to me. Um, well, yeah. and what, one of the things that makes it so complicated and so difficult is of course, it's the Palestinians home too. Of course. Um, and that's a, that is definitely a conversation for another day. Um, but I think it also leads us into the Torah that you wanted to share. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, uh, I mean, as you well know, uh, we so we're in the book of Genesis. Uh, it's hard to pick a favorite book, but I mean, of all of all the Torah, the, the human stories and the family stories are uh, the thing that uh, soap operas and reality TV shows are, are based off of today. Um, and it starts from the very beginning. It starts with Abraham, Abraham, our, our earliest forefather's wife, Sarah, and their inability to have a, a family together. And so uh, Sarah offers up her her handmaiden, Hagar, and, and Abraham, and she had to have a son named Ishmael, Ishmael, a beautiful name in Hebrew, right? God will, God will hear, God will hear me. Uh, it's a really beautiful name. And finally, uh, laughing because of its impossibility, Isaac Yitzchak, right? The word for, for laughter comes into the world and Hagar and Ishmael are banished and uh, they sort of leave the biblical narrative for a time. Isaac grows up, gets married. Uh, Sarah passes away in this Torah portion this week, Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah. Uh, but near the very end of this Torah portion uh, this week, we also, the first forefather dies, Abraham dies. And 
it's it's the tour is so funny because sometimes it gives no detail at all and every once in a while just gives us this rich detail and abraham lived to this full ripe old age he died happy like what it's just sort of this, this astonishing thing and the very next verse completely unexpected and completely out of, out of nowhere it says that isaac and ishmael come together to bury their father um and as i'm sure many of you know isaac is the you know the continuation of the line of the jewish people and ishmael is where the uh the Muslim uh, faith and many Arab peoples trace their lineage back to. And I have to say this sort of idea of standing Isaac and Ishmael together with everything we're looking at around the world seems so far away, right? It seems so far-fetched and sort of seems uh, incompatible with what we're talking about. But friends, look at what's happening in Israel right now every single day. It's hard and it's getting harder, but there is cooperation and coexistence and friendship and trust and um, uh, uh, brotherhood and sisterhood between Arabs and Jews, uh, Muslim, Christians, uh, and, and Jews. And it really, what everything that we've seen will draw us and try to bring us to the conclusion that it's impossible, that we can't work together, that we can't live together. Um, it's going to take a lot of bravery. It's going to take a lot of soul searching. It's going to take a lot of really uh, difficult and trying steps. But we, 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 the eternal people, we cannot give up on the hope that uh, the place that we call home and the place that our neighbors also call home can be for all of us, that it can work, that uh, we can come together um, in with remembering our shared pasts, um, and that will be the great challenge of the day after uh, this war. And may it come soon, and may it come swiftly, and may the peace that it brings be uh, uh, longer and more meaningful than anything that we've known uh, before. So. Um, Try to try to look at the light. Try to stay hopeful. Uh, it's really the only way um, that I'm making it through the day. That my friends and colleagues are making it through uh, the day. So um, we can hold on to that, um, even as we, even as you know, the Israel and its army carries out the terrible task that it must do. Um, we can hold out that the day after will bring something better. Amen. Amen. Yeah, fair, beautiful Torah. Um, and thank you, Josh, Rabbi Josh, for coming on and, and sharing your perspective and your wisdom. And um, we hope and we pray that you and your family and your friends stay safe. And we hope to thank have you. you on again for uh, a brighter and a happier conversation sometime soon. All my best. Thank you so much, Rabbi Jeff. Thank you, Josh. Take care.